Welcome back, everyone, to Law School Life and Beyond's Leadership Series. My name is Katya, and I am the host of this podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by Troy Harris, a construction arbitrator and mediator at Harris Arbitration in Detroit. Troy Harris also happens to be my first-year contracts law professor. We have not had anyone on the show that works within the field of construction law as of yet, so I'm really excited to speak to Professor Harris about this in greater detail, especially about his role as an arbitrator and mediator. So thank you so much, uh, Troy, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here, too. Um, So what drew you to a career in law? Well, it's interesting. It's unlike some people who... uh, you know, they are in their last few years of university and think they need to do something respectable. And so they decide, well, I'll go to law school. That was not my experience. Um, for me, the law is the only thing that I seriously uh, considered over an extended period of time. I mean, I think when, when you're young, everyone has the experience of kind of mentally experimenting with being an astronaut or a doctor mm-hmm. or whatever. And and I did that too. But being a lawyer is something that just uh, maybe it was watching too many lawyer shows on TV or, or whatever, but it's the only thing that really stuck. And as I got into it more, I discovered Believe it or not, it really is interesting. It's okay. There's always something new to learn. There's it's always evolving. And the law, one of the things that I like about the law is that it tries to deal with big questions in a concrete way. Okay. It's one of these areas that tries to take, you know, real life and capture capture the relationships in two dimensions, really. For the most part, it's it's uh, the law consists of you know, cases and statutes and things like that that are written texts that mm-hmm. try to capture a, a much more uh, rich and, and four-dimensional kind of reality. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting on a lot of different levels. And then just as a practical matter, everyone has legal questions at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just getting a, a permit to do something or getting a parking ticket all the way up to the great constitutional questions of our time. So mm-hmm. it's something that I find infinitely interesting and is the only thing that I've ever really been seriously drawn to. Okay. And so then when you got into law school, was it everything you hoped and dreamed? Not really. I mean, I didn't I didn't quite expect know what to expect. I I was a history major and so mm-hmm. I had taken some constitutional history courses and things like that, but it was very much a big picture kind of approach to the law. And so mm-hmm. when I took contracts, I was sort of naively assuming, okay, contracts I know have been around since Roman times, if not before we're going to hear about the history of contracts. And Mm -hmm. that was not at all what we were hearing about. What we were talking about was consideration. And (laughs) all of these, you know, to me, it seemed like a lot of trying to determine how many angels could dance on the head of a pin, Mm -hmm. especially when it then turns out that consideration actually isn't all that important in practice, right? Because of the whole peppercorn theory of consideration. So, uh, law school for me was not what I was expecting. I was expecting a much more uh, 
theoretical, historical, philosophical kind of thing, because that's that's mm. kind of where I was coming from as an undergraduate. But as I got into it, um, you know, you you have to have to kind of give in to how the game is played and mm. realize, okay, that's not what this is about. What it really is a lot about is learning some vocabulary particular mm. to a particular area, whether it's contracts or civil procedure towards what have you, and learning to issue spot. Mm. And so that was that was a different experience for me. And I think for most law students, most people who come to law school have not had the kind of experience that you get in law school. No, and I think most of us go in blind too. We have no idea what we're about to learn. Is it going to be super practical or super theoretical? And then it's kind of just a mishmash of both. Um, so that's interesting. Right. And then, so then did you like your law school experience? I, you know, it'd be hard to say that very many people really like law school, <laughs> uh, like it in the way that they like, you know, other things in life. It mm-hmm. was, it was immensely challenging. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met a lot of really interesting people. It's, provided me with a good living for the past 30 years, whatever. Mm. Um, But the experience of law school, until you sort of get comfortable with how the game is played Mm -hmm. and what law school can do and what it can't do in terms of preparing you for uh, life as a lawyer, until you get to that point, it can be very off-putting because you're like, you know, mm-hmm. this is, I'm used to being at the top of my class and, you know, <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm like average, you know, and so yeah. it's a real come down from an ego standpoint for most people because even mm-hmm. people who do really well in one class may not do really well in some other class and hardly anybody aces everything, yeah. right? And so it's... Uh, it can be a real ego bruiser, but at the same time, it's there is nothing like it in terms of the training that law school provides by way of uh, analysis in mm-hmm. terms of a, a very verbal uh, way. There are other fields like chemistry or math or physics or whatever, the hard sciences that help people learn to think analytically but not really analytic, analytically in a verbal kind of way. It's analytically in a typically a quantitative way. Mm-hmm. But law school is terrific as far as really sharpening one's ability to be analytical with words mm-hmm. and realize mm-hmm. just how important words are. I tell my students, I probably said this in your class, that, that uh, if you're not a word person, if you don't like get into the nuances of words, then you're going to have a hard time because mm-hmm. words make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's, it's a tremendous experience in that respect. But mm-hmm. as far as like, did I, I enjoyed the people I met. I enjoyed my professors. The material was challenging and interesting. Um, but it was a lot of work, you know, mm-hmm. I can't say that I enjoyed it in the same way, for example, that I enjoyed graduate school. I loved graduate school because I was, for the most part, studying something that I was, I already knew something about. I kind of knew how that game was played. I uh, could focus just on the things I was interested in largely. And 
it was a tremendous intellectual experience mm-hmm. and I, I loved it. And I would go back and do that in a minute. Law yeah. school, I'm glad to have done, but I wouldn't want to go through it again. Just leave that um, in the past. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love being a lawyer mm-hmm. and whether as a professor or a practitioner or any other capacity, I've loved being a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, I guess, kind of a love-hate relationship with the law school experience itself because it is, mm-hmm. it is, uh, it was very different and challenging and and whatnot, and yet it's it's shaped who I became. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you've actually not found yourself, but put yourself into a really cool area of law, um, being a mediator and arbitrator. So I'm really interested to hear more about that. Um, can you first off, like, describe the role of an arbitrator and the role of a mediator, please? Sure. The, the basic difference between an arbitrator and a mediator is that an arbitrator is somebody who actually decides a mm-hmm. case, a dispute between two parties, and the arbitrator's decision is binding and mm-hmm. final on the parties. It's a substitute for going to court. Mm-hmm. And so in order for there to even be an arbitration, the parties have to agree to arbitrate. If you and I have a, have a dispute and we can't resolve it ourselves, then we can either, one of us can haul off and go to court, or uh, we can agree that we're going to submit the dispute to some third party and that we'll both be bound by that, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that third party is an arbitrator, is the arbitrator. And so the arbitrator gets to make the decision, has the responsibility mm-hmm. for making a decision uh, in the form of an award. And that is generally, certainly in Canada and the United States, is enforceable as a court judgment mm-hmm. in that jurisdiction. As opposed to a mediator, a mediator is really somebody who tries to facilitate a settlement between the parties. Mm-hmm. And so if parties are at an impasse, they have a dispute, they can't resolve it themselves, they say, okay, let's go to mediation where Mm -hmm. you have somebody who, the neutral third party mediator who tries to bring the parties to some sort of agreement Mm -hmm. to settle their dispute. The mediator doesn't get to decide the dispute. Mm -hmm. Mediator has no authority or power to force the parties to settle. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are different styles of mediation, uh, but the basic difference is who gets to decide. In Mm -hmm. an arbitration, it's the arbitrator who decides. In a mediation, it's ultimately the parties themselves who decide how the dispute's going to be resolved, if at all. A lot of mediations don't succeed, and so the parties are left with going back to, okay, we go to court or we uh, hire an arbitrator. Mm -hmm. So how far into your career did you kind of take on these roles? Because I imagine that you would have needed to kind of have a lot of experience and um, reputation within your legal community in order for people to kind of trust you with these positions. Is, is it, that's my understanding of mediation and arbitration. Is that correct? Yeah, that's generally right. Um, mm-hmm. Most people come to it sort of mid to late career. Um, mm-hmm. My background is in construction law and mm-hmm. construction disputes have used mediation and arbitration um, for a very long time mm-hmm. as or parties have used mediation and arbitration as 
means to resolve disputes in the construction industry for centuries. Mm. And so the my background as a construction started as a construction lawyer and I moved into the mediation and arbitration work from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was probably 15 years into my career that I started. Uh, I think I got on the AAA, the American Arbitration Association's construction panel was the first panel I was on. And that was, um, 15 or so years into my career as a construction lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fairly typical. Most okay. uh, neutrals, which is the generic term for mediator and arbitrator, mm-hmm. most neutrals will get on an institutional panel of some sort, at least in the United States, um, such as the American Arbitration Association, mm-hmm. and do a little bit of that work along the way while they're okay. still practicing full-time as a, as an advocate for uh, one party or the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause I, um, I had mentioned to my dad, I was, he's a family lawyer in Windsor and I was like, I don't really think I am a litigator. I think that mediation is more up my alley. I'm just going to graduate and go to mediation. He's like, ah, oh, that's not really how it works. You have to <laughs> quite a few years of experience first. Yeah, I mean, it, I think, you know, I can't really speak to how soon family lawyers get into the mediation mm-hmm. side of things. But, of course, mediation is a huge thing in family law. Yeah. And in in uh, jurisdictions where you've got mandatory mediation of type, you know, certain categories of disputes, at least, mm-hmm. it's a very big, very big field. But, mm-hmm. yes, generally, people want to know that you've actually practiced in the area and kind of know um, how, how that area works, mm-hmm. partly because certainly, you know, one style of mediation is what's known as evaluative, where the mediator will offer an opinion about what the likely outcome is if the thing doesn't settle and goes all the way to court or to arbitration. Yeah. Well, to give that kind of opinion, you really have to have kind of practiced in the area a little bit so that you know what's yeah. likely to happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, it's important to to have that practical experience first. But um, but then my suggestion for folks is always who think they might be interested is to start early getting whatever kind of training you can get in mediation Mm -hmm. or arbitration. Uh, Because even if you're not immediately doing work as a mediator or arbitrator, it will help you as an advocate when you're representing a party in a mediation or an arbitration to understand how the process works. Yeah. And will just enhance your your credibility and marketability in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you practice law in the traditional sense at all anymore, or are you full-time mediator and arbitrator? I don't practice as an advocate um, once in a while. I mean, there will be a a matter that will come along, uh, but for the most part, I'm full-time in in that part of my life uh, Mm -hmm. on the neutral side of things. Okay. Okay. That's exciting. Um, so then my next question is, what drew you to construction law? And then do you mind also describing what construction law is, please? Sure. Um, the 
what drew me to it was I had a job offer with a construction <laughs> firm. I had no idea what construction law was. Um, I didn't take any, I don't think they had any classes in construction law where I went to law school. And if they had, I wouldn't have taken it because it sounds boring. Mm-hmm. I was very much interested in constitutional law and big picture issues, kind of like I was saying earlier. Yeah. But I, I, needed a job. I was finishing mm-hmm. a, a job with a judge that I had after law school, and I needed a new job, and I got an offer to work at this small construction law boutique, and I thought, this sounds interesting. One of the things mm-hmm. I had learned when I was clerking was that I was really much more interested in, in um, contract disputes than I was other types of disputes and Mm -hmm. construction law to sort of segue into your other question. Construction law is about 90% contracts. Mm -hmm. It's uh, what it's, it's like manufacturing law or transportation law or aviation law. It's one of these things that is an industry focus more than it is a discrete body of law unto itself. As I said, it's about 90% contract law, the, um, and the rest of it is sort of a grab bag of tort and uh, some constitutional law questions from time to time. But for the most part, it's, it's uh, contracts, torts, ADR, uh, statutory interpretation, particularly in, in Canada. Uh, some public law, depending on what what uh, the nature of the project is, insurance, but all of these things that you would take separate courses in in law school, contracts and insurance, etc., are you know have a particular color when you assemble them in that industry, in the construction industry, in the same way that manufacturing or aviation or transportation all have, you know, a little bit of you know, contracts and statutory law, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you assemble the bits and pieces in those industries, it looks a little different. And what's different is really the risks that are inherent in each kind of industry. Construction law is full of risk because you've got construction projects that are executed in different parts of the world under different conditions, both mm-hmm. weather conditions, ge- geological conditions, political conditions, yeah. labor conditions, all sorts of things that that make successfully delivering a construction project inherently risky. And that's yeah. what construction law does, is attempt to allocate those risks in different ways in light of the applicable law. So in my construction law class, for example, what we do, it's, as I said, it's about 90% contracts because uh, we take some standard form construction agreements and explore how they allocate risk in different ways. And so whereas like in first year contracts, you spend most of your time reading cases Mm -hmm. or first year torts, it's all about case law. If you take a course in 
in sales or tax. It's all statutory and code driven. Mm-hmm. In construction law, it's all about the contract and what's in there mm-hmm. and what's not. Mm-hmm. And so we spend a tremendous amount of time dissecting standard form construction contracts because that's where the real risk allocation takes place and what is defining the party's rights and responsibilities. I guess I never really appreciated how risky and volatile the construction law industry is because you're right, like weather is going to have something to do with it, that where the project is is going to have something to do with it. So that is that is really fascinating, actually. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've found it interesting, the um, whether you're talking about, I know it sounds very dry, um, mm-hmm. and it is kind of dry, but... Once you kind of get, it's like everything else. Once you kind of get into it, then you kind of appreciate the subtleties and and what's going on. Um, at first, mm-hmm. it seems like, oh my God, you know, who would want to do that for the rest of their lives? But um, but most areas are like that. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I think I've said this in class before. This is practicing law is not like being on suits. Yeah. I'm sorry to break the news. There's a lot mm-hmm. of drudge work involved, um, whether it's reviewing documents as part of a you know, due diligence exercise in a big M&A transaction, whether it's reviewing documents for privilege. I mean, a lot of this stuff is getting automated now with artificial intelligence and so forth. But still, there's a lot of drudge work involved. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of give into that and, and find the interesting bits where you can. Mm-hmm. And once you've been in an area and practiced it for a while, it gets more and more interesting because mm-hmm. you're more and more familiar with it. Mm-hmm. What is the largest difference um, between Canadian and American construction law then? Well, at least speaking on the as to common law Canada, I can't really speak to the uh, civilian side in Quebec, but mm-hmm. one big difference that I've noticed is that in Canada, the construction industry, construction projects tend to be more heavily regulated. So for example, in Ontario, you've got the Construction Act that prescribes uh, certain things that in the United States are generally left to the parties to agree to or not. So for Mm -hmm. example, there's uh, the amendments to the Construction Act in Ontario that were just uh, enacted a few years ago, mandating prompt payment and statutory adjudication of disputes. These are things that uh, in the United States, for all construction projects, public, private, large, small, whatever. And those are things that in the United States are for the most part left to the parties to agree to or not. There are some prompt payment, and by prompt payment, I just mean that in a typical construction con arrangement, you've got the owner pays a general contractor, the general contractor turns around, pays various subcontractors and suppliers. Mm-hmm. And the prompt payment act um, will require that the owner pay the contractor within X number of days of the contractor submitting its bill, contractor has to turn around, pay its subs and suppliers promptly within X number of days from receiving payment from the owner, etc. In the United States, there are prompt payment acts that different states have enacted, but they're 
almost uniformly addressed to public projects. And on a private construction project, it's it's whatever the parties agree to. So there's mm-hmm. more freedom of contract in that respect. Same thing with adjudication. In Ontario now, and this is kind of a, a trend in Canada, seems to be, the uh, adoption with modifications of adjudication, which is um, adopted, started in the, in the UK and is kind of spread throughout the Commonwealth, but is now and has made an appearance in Canada, whereby um, disputes can be resolved on a very short uh, time frame between the parties while the project is ongoing and the the decisions binding on the parties until the project's finished, at which time then they can go back and revisit the adjudicator's decision through arbitration or, or court litigation. Okay. That's also something that's not a thing in the United States. If parties want to agree to it, that's fine, but it's not mandatory with the way it's mandatory in Ontario. Um, so in general terms, I think, the construction industry and private construction projects are more heavily regulated by statute in Canada than they tend to be in the United States. Okay. Do you have any advice for future or current law students? Yeah, one, uh, I guess I have a couple of thoughts. Mm. One is that it's really important, and this is true for, for everyone, not just Uh, law students or new lawyers, but it's absolutely important to take ownership of your own career Mm -hmm. and realize that nobody's going um, going to guide you through, you know, from where you are now to the end of your career, that you have to decide what it is that you're interested in Mm -hmm. and look for opportunities in that area, find ways to get the background and the experience in a given area so that you can seize the opportunities when they present themselves. And that involves a lot of sweat equity. It's also important to understand that what you think you might be interested in today uh, may be very different from what you are interested in in five or 10 years. And so a lot of lawyers end up having multiple skill sets in different areas of the law because they've, to some extent, reinvented themselves along the way as as the market for different legal services changes and as their interests evolve, they may um, pick up some new area and so it's important to, to stay flexible. But beyond that, I'd just say be patient because the law is not like some areas in mathematics and, and physics, if you haven't made a name for yourself by the time you're 30, okay, that's, you know, you probably aren't going to because that's mm-hmm. when most of the creative geniuses seem to have done their thing is by, is at a relatively young age. Law is not like that. It takes a very long time to really build a level of expertise and experience in a particular area and be known in the field. Mm-hmm. And that's why sort of the pinnacle of being a lawyer is to get, at least in the common law world, is to get appointed to the bench, right? Because mm-hmm. this is sort of the crowning achievement of 
what's been usually a lifetime you know, career's work in in developing expertise and credibility and, and reputation. So you have to be patient um, and not expect that the first rattle out of the box, you're going to be arguing cases at the Supreme Court or handling your own, you know, multi-million dollar dispute or, or transaction or anything like it. You're going to be doing a lot of drudge work, but eventually mm-hmm. you will get there. It's a, it's a long haul. Mm-hmm. How do you define success for yourself? Because I think we were given a piece of advice from Francine Hurley. I just interviewed her. And she said it's very important for law students to define their own success and kind of go with that because there's a lot of noise, like even like OCIs and stuff. And maybe you don't want to do OCIs and be on the big Bay Street firm. So it's important to hear this noise, but then kind of put yourself on a path that is aligned with what you believe to be success, um, success for you. So how would you define success for yourself? It's a, it's a good question. I, I would echo Francine's point because you do have to look deep within yourself to see where what you're interested in matches up with where there's a need out Mm -hmm. there. But I think a good test, at least for me, is do I really look forward to and am I excited about what I'm doing? And the work I do now, I love. I mean, I've really, I've always loved being a lawyer, as I said. Some things, you know, of course, are more interesting than others, but I've I've never regretted being, you know, becoming a lawyer, and I've enjoyed, you know, I like the research and the writing, but I also like the the sort of hand to hand combat of litigation. I like the transactional work. It's not, you know, the transactional side of things is probably not, you know, what I enjoy as much, but it's still interesting to me. And so I've always, it's a cliche, but if you love what you do, you've, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I feel. If I'm in a place where I'm really dreading getting up and going to work, then that's, a, that's not success in my view. Mm-hmm. If, I'm, if I'm enjoying what I'm doing and looking forward to it, then that's, I don't really care how much money I make. It's never been about the money for me. It's mm-hmm. about am I enjoying what I'm doing and feeling like I'm, you know, contributing to society in some respect. And I've got a list of things that I would like to do in my life, as most people do personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I've ticked most of those boxes. And so now it's just down to am I really enjoying what I'm doing? And that's mm-hmm. going to, you know, different people enjoy different things. One thing I think particularly this kind of goes back to your earlier question about advice, Um, finding a practice area that really suits your personality. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could be a family lawyer like your dad, Mm -hmm. because at least from what I've seen, you really have to be patient with people, be able to listen to their stories, allow them to vent, I don't have a lot of patience for that kind of thing, <laughs> you know, and that's just know you know, I'm sure a personality f- flaw in, in, in my own character, but no. I don't have a lot of patience for that kind of thing. Give me a box mm-hmm. of documents mm-hmm. so that I can figure out what happened and what the legal significance of it is. And I'm happy as a clam. Okay. Um, and, you know, but that's, that's my personality. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out 
what your personality is like. Do you like, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Do you like being mm-hmm. around people and, and hearing their stories and, and that sort of thing? Do you energize by being around people or not? Do you like to have your day and week and month kind of planned out ahead of time? Or do you thrive on getting a phone call late in the afternoon saying, hey, we need you you know, to review this contract and give me your comments by, you know, midnight. Mm-hmm. If you like that kind of excitement, which I don't, um, <laughs> if you like, but if you do, if that's what, you know, how your personality is, then, you know, go into a transactional practice where people mm-hmm. will do that. Mm-hmm. Clients will do that, call you at the last minute and say, you know, we've got all the terms agreed. We just need a lawyer to quote, look it over, which mm-hmm. is, should always raise a red flag in your mind when, when somebody said, when a client says that to you. Um, mm-hmm. so figuring out what your personality is like is, is a big part of it. But for me, um, you know, the, the combination of things that I do as an arbitrator, um, I really, I, I love and I enjoy and look forward to every day. Um, and that's that's how I define what's success for me. Okay, that's awesome. Thank you so much for that advice and for coming on. This was really, really, this was really, really awesome, Professor Harris. Thank you. Well, you're absolutely welcome. Enjoy the rest of your summer. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in as always. And be sure to tune in next week for Law School Life and Beyond's next episode of the Leadership Series.